So we know that kids believe their parents have a special power. It's a pe- special power to stand out, you know, to, to draw all the eyes in the room on them. And I don't know when it happens, right? At what age kids begin to say, you can't possibly wear that. Just drop me off here. Please don't say anything in front of my friends. All right, we pick on them, but we know that we all have times when we'd rather not stand out. Because there are advantages to blending in. It can work in your favor to go unnoticed. But is that an option for the Christian, for the church? If we too are exiles, remember that's how Peter addresses the Christians he's writing to. If we're truly exiles, as Ryan said last week, misfits. If we're these sojourners, can we go unnoticed? Can we blend in? Well, not according to Peter, because that's not how the gospel works in our lives. As Christians, we stand out. Not simply by what we do from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock, maybe 11.15, depends on who's preaching, on Sunday mornings. We stand out by our conduct, how we live, the way that we carry ourselves through life. And that's our big idea this morning. As exiles, we stand out. We stand out by our holy and loving conduct that never turns off. By our holy and loving conduct that never turns off. And to do that, Peter offers us guidance. Maybe you can think of it as a strategy to keep our conduct holy and loving in a world that isn't on board with our program. And so in our passage, we'll see that keeping our conduct holy and loving is possible when we look in four directions. We need to keep looking up, looking forward, looking back, and looking in. So up, forward, back, and in. And if you have your Bible, you can open it up to 1 Peter. The passage will also be on the screens. We're looking at 1 Peter, so we continue in our study Verses 13 to 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God does forever. So verses 13 to 16, they tell us to look up. They tell us to look up. And if you've talked to someone who's maybe traveled outside the country recently, hopefully they'll tell you that they had a great time, but they always end it by saying, we were glad to get home. It's like, it's where life is more comfortable. But for the Christian, where's home? If we're exiles, our true home can't be here. Our home is with the Lord. It's in the new heavens and the new earth. We will only be home, truly home when Christ returns, as Peter says, at his revelation. And that's why we need to look up, because our hope is from above. Set your hope fully, Peter says, on the grace, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, verses one to two, verses one, verses one to 12, as we saw last week in this letter, they are all about the grace that these exiles have already received. That's why verse three starts with blessed. Thank, thank the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for this grace that we have received in this life. And then in verse 13, we hit verse 13 and Peter says, I've got great news. You've already received grace. There is more grace, more favor, greater joys and pleasures to come. So that means that in this life, we're just getting a foretaste of grace. We're just scratching the surface. Right? Our world, our culture, may not approve of our conduct. Our way of life might get labeled evil, oppressive, backwards. And when those insults come, when those accusations are hurled at you, it can make it difficult to keep pursuing the holy and loving conduct that is pleasing to God. Have you felt that difficulty this week? Or do you feel like you're walking into the wind, always swimming against the current, told you are on the wrong side of history? Peter's telling you to lift your eyes upward. And when you do, fix your mind, prepare your mind. Make every effort to think clearly, to think soberly about what's ahead because there is endless grace on the way. And when our minds aren't disciplined to think about the coming of Christ, to meditate on the grace that he'll bring, it's just that much harder to endure in conduct that is pleasing to God. When our minds aren't disciplined in this way, temptations are fiercer. Sin is more appealing. Shortcuts look promising. Looking up to this future grace with a serious mind 
is one way exiles keep their conduct pure. There's also another reason that we need to look up, to know what counts as holy and loving conduct. Notice how Peter describes the former life of these Christians. It's not exactly a compliment. He says, do not be conformed, and what does he say? To the passions of your former ignorance. See, the life we lived apart from Christ, our pre-Christian life, is of no help when it comes to living for Christ. It's like how living all your life at sea level will be of no help if you want to climb Everest. Right? Before, the Bible says that before we were made alive with Christ, we were dead that there was no spiritual life in us. We weren't seeking the truth. We weren't seeking God. So we weren't just in darkness. We were darkness. And so that former life, it can't be your guide. You can't pattern the Christian life after your days of ignorance. And that's why we need to look up to God. He is the one who's called us out of this darkness. He's called us to spiritual life. He's adopted us into his family and he himself is truth. And so God is the one who tells us what is holy and what is loving. But if we look at what our culture's doing, sadly, we see that our culture has resigned to defining a word A word of such great importance, love, with itself. Friends, that helps no one. It's just going to cause more damage and more hurt and just add to more confusion. It is a gracious thing of our creator to give us definitions, to supply us with his word, and to reveal his holy and loving character through that word. So we no longer need to be trapped in that ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And praise be to God that he has revealed that holiness to us. You know, I think there's a key phrase in verse 15. It says, all your conduct. It doesn't say just be holy when you're around other Christians. When you come here on Sunday mornings for worship or when you're in public and certain people might see you. The point, as one commentator says, is that for Christians, the call is to live differently. We don't settle for just practicing religion differently. And so our work is for God. Our marriages are for God. Singleness is for God. Parenting is for God. Education is for God. Friendships for God. Even basketball and soccer and baseball are for God. Right, teenagers in the room, what does that mean to you? As a student, as an athlete, as a friend, as a sibling, What do you think it means to do those things for God? Where would you begin to find an answer to such an important question? I'll tell you what. You can ask your parents how they live for God's sake 
as a parent, right? in their work, as a spouse. Because we conduct ourselves in all of those things to bring glory to God by reflecting the goodness, the holiness of his character. And that's why, as we continue to study this letter, we will not hear Peter ever tell these Christians to hide out, to find a bunker until Christ returns. God wants you in the world, moving through life for his sake. That's our distinctiveness. We want to stand out for that reason. So friends, look up to God. Be familiar with his character, his ways, especially as they are revealed in the Son of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the writer of Hebrews tells us. We need to be people who learn to love God's holiness and to remember that former life, the old life, is of no help here. We need a better life to look at. So study the life of God as his obedient children. And so we look up. We also need to look forward. Right? Summer is fast approaching. And no, I intended to say that. Summer is fast approaching. It will arrive. And I imagine you've already got dates circled on your calendar. Like VBS here, June 12th, right? That week. So weeks are blocked out. And in some way, what you have planned is going to shape today's choices. Maybe you've got to buy a few things, you've got to save up money, get in better shape, whatever it is, you know that that future starts to shape the present. And that's what Peter believes. So look at verse 17 again. It says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So one way we keep our conduct holy and loving is by looking forward to the day of judgment. It's not that our sins will come before the throne of God. But in some way, what this text is saying is that our deeds will. Our deeds will come before God. And as Christians, we've been given intimacy with God. It is a privilege to know him as our father. We know that in Christ, he is always for us. But Peter's saying, time out for just a sec. Exiles, don't let that knowledge and that intimacy and that familiarity lead to license. He addresses them as obedient children, not spoiled children. And don't obedient children enjoy a closer, better relationship with their parents? Right? That obedience, that desire not to do anything foolish or offensive, it promotes the relationship. And that's how the fear of God works. It's that desire not to offend that doesn't drive us away, but actually draws us near to him. So being careful, watchful about how we live doesn't imply 
That doesn't imply that we mean that we believe that we'll be saved according to our deeds. It just means that we have a respect of our Father's authority as our Creator, as the one who is sovereign over us. We respect that authority and right that He has to examine our conduct. Right? Jesus delighted. It was his joy. He said it was his food to obey and please his father. And that didn't make Jesus prideful or legalistic. I think this is also important in our, in our day. That God's impartial judgment keeps us from internalizing and adopting the ways, the standards of those who oppose our faith, who will call us evildoers. Because listen to what Peter says about, how Christ, about Christ and how he faced opposition and yet kept his conduct pure. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, we must promote, defend the truth without shame. We need boldness in our day. But we will never need abusive language. We will never need to rely on threats. We will never need to hide the truth and speak a lie. So let's not be surprised when we're sinned against. Instead, let's prepare our hearts not to respond sinfully. Those around you, wherever you find yourself, may not live with any fear of God, totally blind to his coming judgment. But just maybe, maybe by conducting yourself with reverent fear, Conducting yourself in such a way that you show that you believe you are accountable to someone other than yourself, maybe that will awaken them. Maybe that will spark a question from them. Why do you choose to live the way you do and make the choices that you do? But if we win tomorrow's fight, if we win the next skirmish, by abandoning the kind of life that God calls us to, answer me, what eternal good will that do? Our world and our culture doesn't take judgment seriously. But we in the church, we take it very seriously. And so we keep looking forward to the day of his judgment throughout our exile. So we look forward, but we also need to keep looking backward. You know, you probably, you have something in your possession, something that's meaningful to you, probably something that you always wanted. Whatever it is, I bet you could tell me how much it cost. You could ballpark it at least. And don't worry, I won't ask. But if we ask Jesus, don't worry, Jesus won't tell me. But Jesus will tell us what we cost. 
knowing, Peter says, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, do you treat your life according to the price paid for you? Because Christ's payment says that your life is valuable, that it matters. Do you realize no one has paid a greater price for anything than the one Christ paid to redeem his people, that he shed his blood to free us? And that's why someone pays a ransom, isn't it? Christ paid this ransom to free us from a way of life that was worthless, unholy, unloving, a life that was perishing, a life that was headed for destruction. But because of the gospel, because of what Christ paid for us, we now have freedom. But what does that freedom look like? Listen to what Peter says just later in chapter two, verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, that is, freed from a futile life, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Paul says it like this, you are not your own. For Christian, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, it's true that even many Christians hate their body, are ashamed of their body, always thinking that their body must change. That's not the problem, Christ says. Our bodies are not the problem. They are redeemed. And our bodies can be used for this great purpose, to bring glory to God. What a message that our culture needs to hear. That there's not a problem with your body. There can be a problem with the use of our body. But that Christ is willing to redeem our bodies for his glory. So here's what both are saying. Saying that this fight against sin... This battle against unholy conduct is waged by looking back on the price that was paid to get you out of the sin that still entices you. Because we look back and see that as Christians, we no longer belong to this this former futile life. And so what that means is you owe it nothing. It deserves nothing from you. Friends, sin has only robbed from you. It is only taken. And it's Christ who's given you everything. So what freedom there is to give him your time, your energy, your mind, yes, even your body. That's how we pursue holy and loving conduct, giving ourselves completely to the life we now have because this price has been paid and our captivity is over. And if you're here this morning and don't know that kind of freedom, the good news for you is that Christ came into the world. As Peter says, he was made manifest at the last times for the sake of you, 
that through him you could become a believer in God, that he was raised from the dead for you, giving glory so that your faith, your hope, could be removed from things that are going to perish, and that your faith and hope could be placed in God. Gold and silver, all the money in the world can't rescue you from where your life is headed apart from Christ. So what good news that the blood of Christ can because the gospel says, quit trying to find your own freedom. Quit trying to secure your own life. The gospel says that freedom, this true and vibrant and flourishing life, is given to those who have nothing, no gold, no silver, but come to Christ with faith in him, letting him purchase everything on your behalf. So lastly, we need to keep looking in. If we're going to conduct ourselves in holiness and love, we need to look inside our hearts. Love one another earnestly, Peter says, from a pure heart. You know, that's a great command. But if Peter simply ended with that imperative, if he put the period there, love one another earnestly, period, we'd miss something important, something essential. Because Peter knows that naturally our hearts aren't pure. We're born not obeying the truth. We suppress it. And so our natural hearts can't love earnestly. So something within must change. Our flesh can't help us. And that means our effort, our strength, can't bring about the change we need. Just trying harder to be good won't cut it. So what's left? Well, according to Peter... Something that possesses the power to bring new life must be planted inside you. That we need something to come from the outside of us and produce what God intended. Something imperishable. You see, the reason, the reason that Peter can command these exiles to love is because they were born again. This new life was planted in them. A better seed came to them, a seed that could actually produce what God intended. And what was inside them was not a resolve just to be better people. What was inside them, what was dwelling in them, was the good news that was preached to them. You see, Peter is saying that what came to these exiles was not the command to love, and be holy, what first came to them was the message about Jesus Christ and what he had done. Because holy and loving conduct, friends, is, is the fruit of the gospel dwelling in God's children. This message about Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, that he was the righteous one who suffered for the un righteous, that message must be born in you. And it's by that message alone that exiles live differently. It's what gives us living hope. It's what gives us new affections, new motivations, a brand new conduct and way of life. We stand out because of the good news 
that's brought us life. See, church, we're distinct. Not because of our politics, not because of where we live, what clothes we wear, what we've done, who we know. The Bible says all of that is rubbish, of no help. Because apart from the gospel, we're no different from the world. There are no sins out there that aren't familiar in our hearts. The only reason we can stand out is because of Christ and the word about him and what it has done and is doing in us. You see why we love God's word. You see why we need to drink from it. Beat a path to it every day throughout our exile because everything else is fading and perishing and weak and ineffectual. But there's this imperishable word. There's this living and abiding word that can bring new life. It can produce what God intends. And so remember, the whole goal of standing out, it is simply to make Christ known. That's the ultimate purpose of the gospel. It is making God in all of his fullness, all of his holiness, all of his love, all of his grace and mercy, making God in all his fullness known to his creation. So let's pray for the gospel to be at work in each one of us. Lord God, we do thank you for the life that you have given to us, this new and better life that you've called us to. We pray that we would be people of your word. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you will continue to bring that word into our hearts in producing only what you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.